Hi everybody, this is Matt. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to say that this is sort of a viewer mail episode. It is more like a single viewer mail episode. So I just want to say do not start with this episode if this is your first episode of the podcast. Do not listen to this episode unless you have gone back and listened to the previous three episodes, and then you'll find this to be a wonderful follow-up to those. Okay, let's begin. Hi everybody, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Here is our theme music. So, welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. This week, we have a very special treat, although it's a very special treat you've already had once before, and now you're going to have it again. We have our second special guest on the podcast, and it is the return of our first special guest on the podcast. It is the return of Jonathan Oxier. Jonathan Oxier, say hi to all the people at home. Hello, everybody. I'm Jonathan. I... Jonathan, good to, good to hear from you. It's good to hear from you guys. So how have you been, Jonathan? I've been pretty well. I'm just in the middle of writing new things. I had a big tour this fall for my book Sweep, and now I'm just kind of back in the in the regular work of figuring out stories. Well, Sweep is a wonderful book. I was a big fan of it. Oh, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. I haven't read it yet, but when I saw you at the, at the conference back in Houston, you, you said you didn't have any more stories left in you. Yeah, that was still true as of then. So I'm kind of getting blood from the stone now, but it's starting to finally, you know, I kind of refilled the tank after uh, quite a bit of time. Uh, it was it was <laughs> pretty great. Like, like a librarian came up to you and said, "Jonathan, I love all your wonderful books. What's your next one going to be about?" And you just you looked at her and you said, well, "I got, I got, I got nothing." I got yep. nothing more. And she just looked at you in utter horror. It was like no author had ever said that to her before. It would always be like, well, it's about dinosaur detectives. You know, and Jonathan was like, nothing, nothing. That's it. It's it for Jonathan Oxier. Going out on a high note. <laughs> but no, that was not your final novel. You uh, you published Sweep, and Sweep's been doing all right for you? Yeah, yeah. No, the reception has been uh, kind of more than I ever could have hoped for. I put a lot into that book. I feel like, crucially, that it was the book that I set out to write, which... Uh, sometimes is that's really the only um, the only metric I think yeah uh, that should matter. But also um, beyond that, uh, people have really really responded to it. So it, it's it's just been kind of an overwhelming reception, and uh, and that's so wonderful. So let's review who we are. My name is Matt Bird. I am the author of The Secrets of Story: Innovative Tips for Protecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers, and the blog SecretsOfStory.com, formerly called Cockeyed Caravan. This is James Kennedy. James Kennedy is the author of the wonderful novel The Order of Odd Fish. And uh, lots of other things. He is the host of the 92nd Newbury Film Festival, which is wrapped up. That's why we haven't done an episode in the last two months, because yeah. James has been on the road. How was that, James? It was great. I just got back from Boulder, Colorado. It was the last show of the 14 cities of the season. And I think I'm going to be talking to Jonathan about bringing the show to Pittsburgh maybe Pittsburgh, next year. Pittsburgh, that would be wonderful. Maybe. We'll Jonathan, see. Jonathan, you are not just a Pittsburghian. You are a Pittsburgh booster, correct? Uh, that is actually a requirement of living in Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, I've, never, I think I'll... I've never seen a town that loves itself so much. No, I've <laughs> I've encountered this. People love Pittsburgh, and and they they have their backs up. They're like, you know, like what what are you saying about Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh's great. Don't, oh no, I don't, don't trust they're, anybody. They're oh, do, in... do more of that Pittsburgh accent, Matt. I think that was dead on. <laughs> I, I got look. No, Matt, go on. Do do more Pittsburgh accent. We're in Pittsburgh. I, see, I, it's really really hard not to be kind of head over heels in love with this place. But that's not why we're here either. That's not why we're here. So let's go ahead and get to, Jonathan, I'm going to let you uh, describe why we're here. Why are we here, Jonathan? Uh, This is a weird thing, but uh, basically, I know you guys took a a hiatus. uh, And then, so you're, you know, I was enjoying your podcasts. I I like your blog, Matt. I like both of you guys personally and, and love the way your brains work. 
you disappeared for a little while. You came back uh, a couple months ago and did, uh, I guess, three episodes uh, in a row, I think. Um, and I thought they were amazing. Uh, there was a lot there. And thank there was... you. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> I also found it an incredibly frustrating uh, experience. I, I was, thank uh... <laughs> you. <laughs> because uh, I really, really wanted to be in the room. I thought you guys were kind of broaching some incredibly interesting topics and talking about them in ways I had never heard before. And there were all these things, kind of fireworks going off in my head. But there was also this thing that was happening, I think you guys are aware of, which uh, is that you two can be quite contentious. <laughs> and sometimes I felt like while you were arguing, it, it felt like the image that came to mind would be like two guys with machetes hacking their way through a jungle. And they start yelling about how to read the map, neither of them realizing that like they have revealed an ancient path that leads directly to a temple. Um, and there were several times where I just wanted like either you to take a breath and then come back to the topic again or do a follow-up podcast. And I emailed you voicing this frustration. I said, you guys had all these amazing topics and I wish you could kind of come back to them. And from that came uh, this idea that I could kind of come in and basically just join the fun, uh, not because I have any uh, corrections on anything that you guys were saying, but I felt like there was a lot of uh, untapped potential or unmined uh, fill in the metaphor um, with oh yeah by all means tell us about these ancient temples that we missed <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, that's no well, well here's a machete let's start hacking together what's number one <laughs> Okay, uh, so James, you brought up the OODA loop, um, yes. which is such a cool, interesting concept. Can you, in in a really quick summary, uh, talk about it again for people who didn't catch yes. that? Yes, uh, luckily I listened to all nine episodes before uh, we did today. This is uh, true. James went back and listened to all nine episodes today. It's a concept made up by this Air Force guy. It basically says whatever situation you're in, you have to O-O-D-A, OODA, observe, orient, decide, act. And the way, what you want to do is you want to get inside the other guy's OODA loop. You do something which causes them to go back to observe and orient, and they can never get to decide and act. You're, you're, if you move with more agility, more quickly, it may be causing more chaos. That puts the other person back on their feet. So they're always observing and orienting and never deciding and acting. But one of the things I really loved about that idea, James, and I thought it was a really brilliant and creative application of uh quote-unquote kind of real world stuff to to <laughs> the world of storytelling and one of the reasons i really liked it and i wish there were more writers who knew about it or were thinking this way is because i think there's this this expectation often uh we love stories that have a david versus goliath element you know underdogs whatever but this idea of like well the big hulking you know monolithic un unstoppable force has overlooked something yeah and I think that's really fun when we're concocting a story and we like to set that up. And, and as readers, we love it. But it's actually like on the ground when you're writing a story, it's actually extremely hard to do well. It's and, so hard. And so many like big budget action movies just don't do it. You know, it's like, wait a second. So the hero won by punching harder. Like the hero really didn't do that crucial mystery solving of like every, you know, every action scene should be a mystery scene. It should be a question of like, okay, you know, I'm an underdog, I'm overmatched, I this guy's overpowered, I can't defeat him. Oh, I've solved the mystery of how to defeat him. And so many times they just don't do that. And it's like that's 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 your that's your number one goal is you I, have to do that. Well, I think that's a huge piece of it. And another thing that I see happen as well is we often signal the David versus Goliath, but don't actually earn it. I mean, this that we signal stuff all the time, weak writing does, in the same way that like I can't count the number of stories I've seen where they want to show us that someone's smart. And so what they do is have all the other characters remark out loud, they're the smartest person I know. 
but they never actually <laughs> open their mouths and say something smart. It might make us like momentarily cheer in the moment, but it feels really cheap and manipulative. Here's why I love the OODA loop. The OODA loop is something every David in the world can do, right? Mm -hmm. The idea you talked about, James, was if two characters are competing, that means they have competing OODA loops. And if you can iterate faster than your opponent, you can basically get inside their OODA loop so that they're only, what is it, observing and orienting. Mm-hmm. And are observing and orienting, and you have to. He has to constantly. He, whoever the villain is, uh, he or she has to constantly reorient before they can actually act. And I saw that as an incredibly valuable tool when I need a, 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 you know, a weak character to somehow best a stronger character. And this is also really important because it's not just that our villains. Often we create villains that aren't just Goliaths in terms of being big and hulking. But a lot of our stories involve villains who are actually quite a bit smarter than our protagonists and our readers ostensibly. And then once again, it becomes very tricky. How do you outthink a person who's just actually smarter than you? This gives you a tool. That, that, that's totally true. Like you basically you throw a bunch of shit at them and make chaos and, and make the situation as dumb as you are. Uh, um, and, and <laughs> it, it, so that, that that happens brilliantly. Everybody's favorite moment in Guardians of the Galaxy Part One is when like there's this big face off between Star Lord and whoever the villain is of that, Rook and then Star Lord just starts dancing. Yeah, and he just starts you know like g- kind That's of like, example. It, and it's it's like it, it, it gets in the OODA loop of whoever that villain is whose name I've already forgotten. Ronan the Accuser. Renounce your paltry gods. Your salvation is at hand. Be Yeah! Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Listen to these words. Ooh, child. Things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Now bring it down hard. Someday, put it together. What are you doing? Dance off, bro. Uh, um, but but yeah, and that's when it it kind of gets away from that ponderous, you know, superhero ness. They're making it into a comic book again, yeah. and also just put in, in injecting joy into it. And also, here's a dumb person like bringing the smart person down to the level of their dumbness. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a great example. Yeah. Well, I think um, so. That was one big thing, and it basically, really, what I was seeing there is I felt like you guys were talking about it, but it was so it felt so good and juicy that it could have been declared as a rule. Uh, so one I, other uh, one well, other piece. One, well, I was gonna oh, say sorry. before you yeah, it, I was gonna say. One thing my brother likes to say is it's hard to make things foolproof because fools can be so clever. And uh, that's so true <laughs> and yeah. comes up over and over again in my life is that if it it would be easy to make things foolproof if fools weren't so clever. Who lives when made for a fool to be so clever? Sorry, you were saying? Well, and there's one other thing that I thought of that felt very applicable. As you write your own books and your own stories, I'm sure you guys find like you're you're building these rules as you go and you're like, oh, this I, I worked my way through a problem and I actually think I got something good out of this that I can I can use elsewhere. And one of the other dynamics with the OODA loop I think that's worth talking about is um is the relationship between the storyteller and the reader. Ah. And this is a really essential one. I think we we well, I'm going to give it an example and do what, with it what you will. But um, when I was writing my first book, uh, it's called Peter Nimble and His Fantastic Eyes. It's a, about a small blind orphan who's the greatest thief who ever lived. And midway through this book, there's a, if you're an adult reader, maybe you'll, you'll see it coming. But certainly for a kid reader, there's a big uh, twist in the book. 
And the crucial piece of information that you needed to sort out that twist happens maybe uh, just the way the plot was working happens about 20 pages before the 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 hero uh, can actually put the pieces together, which mm-hmm. created a very dangerous situation where I'm like, I just, I the way things are shaping, I can't, because when the reveal happens, we're going to have to hit pause on everything and deal with it. And I can't do that yet. Um, and so there's this gap where I'm like, well, the reader's going to be 20 pages ahead of me. And that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to basically get, I needed to get the, the clue out there, but I needed the audience not to quite get there until mm-hmm. a little bit later. And this is where the OODA loop really made sense. Cause what I ended up realizing was I had a, a separate set of kind of somewhat big revelations that were dealing with a slightly different topic. Mm-hmm. And basically what I did is I made those next 20 pages all about this other set of revelations. Mm-hmm. And so you mm-hmm. got this clue, but immediately on the heels of that clue was a bigger, like a, a, a you know, a, a bigger piece of bait that the reader latched onto. Yeah. Uh, and a bigger puzzle piece to what, what felt like a bigger mystery in that moment. So you knocked them back to observing. You exactly. That's and and I think it really ended up uh, working. Um, at least it seems like readers were shocked in a situation where they could have easily been again ahead of me. Um, it felt like it really worked. And when you described the OODA loop, I was like, that's exactly what I ended up doing. Was just yeah. if I keep them on their toes enough, because you're gonna do when you're writing a mystery. Sometimes you you got to get a certain clue out, but you're not gonna be able to really take the time to to have that you know, that nice reveal for a little bit. And this is a, a way to kind of stall a little bit um, was thinking about it that way. If I can just constantly. Yeah. So that's a good point. That. So the, you could, OODA loops isn't just between characters, but it's also a way to manage information trip from the writer to the reader. I'm in danger of going information superior here where the audience is going to feel alienated from the hero because they're going to be ahead of the hero, figuring out what the hero can't see. And I've just got to, I've got to just stop that from happening. I've got to, you know, keep them, keep the reader from deciding and acting. I've got to keep them observing. You know, I mean, I always say that one of the best things you can do when you're revising a manuscript is like one of the notes I give people in my services. I'm like, yeah, this is just one damn thing after another. This is just set them up, knock them down. And the best thing you can do when revising is go like, okay, take those three scenes and have them all happen at the exact same time. That person is calling on the phone while that other person is knocking on the door while the other person is proposing marriage. And they all three happen at the same time. Nothing is predictable that way. And it forces your hero to prioritize and forces your hero to make decisions. And it's almost always a good revision trick to have three things happen at the same time because you're uh, disorienting your reader, which is good. Another way to handle that situation, which you have a piece of information you want to get out, and but you don't want them to connect it from A to B, um, is that to make that inf- piece of information that you're revealing very, very relevant to some other problem. Yes. Absolutely. One thing that I said one time, and I don't remember exactly how I, what the situation was, but I said plant solutions as problems and plant problems as solutions. So if something's going to be a big problem and you don't want the audience to realize it's going to be a problem, you go like, hey, everybody, here's the solution. You know, an enemy army has shown up to help us. And it's like, oh, no, this is actually an invading army. But, you know, you first plan it as a solution. All right, cool. Uh, so are we are we good on OODA loops? Yeah, I think, again, I, some of this is just gratitude for you guys bringing this up and starting this conversation because it was really helpful to me. So speaking of helpful or at least super interesting things, James, you proposed a new in, in in one of your episodes you proposed sort of a, a new structure or a rare structure in our current moment um that's gaining popularity these stories of kind of you talked a, a beautiful age and fade of the way i mean empire and decline it seems like mm-hmm. what basically you're talking about 
Um, it's about a place. It's a bigger story than an individual, ostensibly. Um, and you, you also brought up uh, these guys, Rank Raglan and, yes. and their mythotype, uh, for, which was super fascinating because I've been reading about, you know, story stuff for, for years and years, and I had never heard about these guys. Um, so no, just for, for the curious, it's hard to Google because you guys speak quickly. <laughs> Into Wikipedia, you can do the word rank dash raglan. R-A-G-L-A-N, mythotype. Uh, and then you actually it didn't get didn't help that I kept. It didn't help that I kept referring to him as Lord Ragnar, yeah. uh, King of the Barbarians. Yeah, presumably. King Ragnarok. Um, yeah, um, it, 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 when you mentioned this, uh, something occurred to me today when I was listening to those old episodes is that like, I was like saying, this is a kind of, you know, this kind of, we, before we've been talking about like this Joseph Campbell idea of like the hero rises and that's it. I said, oh no, but this whole rank Raglan thing had been taken, that Joseph Campbell had kind of taken one part of this larger rank Raglan story structure that is about the rise and the fall of a hero. And I was like, oh, look, it works so well in The Last Jedi. And I got all kinds of pushback from Matt about that. And because and I get it, okay, maybe The Last Jedi is 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 a controversial thing because not everybody likes it. But here's something that everybody loves that uses the rank Raglan story structure, and I totally forgot to mention it, Hamilton. Yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's about the rise and fall of somebody. It hits every single one of those points. It's like, you know, there's a point which they say, oh, he passes laws, you know, and then like the city <laughs> turns against him. And then like, oh, he he's gone. But, the, you know, the, there's a there's sepulchers named after him. And it's like, that's the like, orphanage. you know, who, who lives, yeah. who dies, who tells your story kind of thing. And so, yes, the, it, it is time for this new story structure that is basically just a recovery of something that's a larger version of what we've been, you know, this truncated thing that we've been working with, you, you know, uh, under the influence of Lucas and, and, and those people. Well, and it's funny, yeah, because, like, the real Hamilton had, like, eight surviving kids, but if you just watch the musical, you get the impression that his only son died. Right. But that makes it fit the Raglan. That shows that it's based on the Raglan, mm -hmm. you know, structure. The Raglan structure is, you know, leaves no descendants, yeah, you know, yeah, as part yeah. of it. And, you know, so he, they have to sort of rewrite Hamilton's story so that he leaves no descendants so that it fits your Raglan model. Yeah, but I want to—I don't want to get too far away from this because I actually thought there was a bigger thing going on uh, with the rank wrangled structure that felt like a, a a big idea. I don't know how it helps for writing, but it it feels uh, it was interesting to me, which is fundamentally, I think uh, the solving of a large problem does follow the basic step of the hero's journey and sort of end at um, you know if you're following the what Raglan said, I guess that's number thirteen. He becomes you know, becomes a king. And then, you know, then we get into the beginning of the decline. He reigns uneventfully, he prescribes laws, loses favor, you know, these things start to happen. Mm -hmm. And what I really think we're looking at is, I do think it was right to sort of separate those two. And Hamilton is broken into acts and theater often has kind of a, a different type of scope than, than other storytelling. <laughs> often, you know, I feel like first and second acts can be kind of radically different. Yeah. In the woods is another good example. It, well, yeah, everything. Sondheim is very big on like deeply flipping the script, like Sunday in the park with George. Absolutely. Um, I would argue Sweeney Todd, but that one's the shift is more subtle, but distinct still. But um, I think what happens in those last pieces. So the list is just for hearing it. Uh, your hero has won out and that's the standard hero journey. And then it's the, your hero now reigns as king uneventfully, prescribed laws, loses favor with gods, is driven, driven from the throne, meets a mysterious death often on top of a hill, which doesn't seem <laughs> like a whole... His children, if any, don't succeed him. His body's not buried. He has one or more holy sepulchers or tombs. And that you talked about as sort of the empire in decline. And what I really think we're looking at is, I think these two things overlay. 
And I think those last, uh, you know, whatever, 10 steps are actually about the world in which a new hero enters. Because ah. right this, it's he he prescribes laws. He loses favor with gods. He's driven from throne and city. Well, I would go, well, what drives him from the throne? A new hero. Mm -hmm. Right. We have, you know, we have this chaos order, chaos order. He created an order that was bad or is bad to to a new to a new hero <laughs> from mm -hmm. their point of view. And that new hero disrupts it. And so I actually think the two kind of um, almost, you know, they kind of lay over top of one another. And as soon as become kings hit, become king hits, we keep going through the, the remaining, you know, 10, 11 steps. But on top of that, you overlay a new hero's journey. And this actually points to a, a, an idea that I've been kind of sitting on for a long time that I have a lot of trouble articulating. And this helped me, which is often when we're writing stories, the difference between a hero and a villain is that the villain had their story previous to hmm. our narrative. Oh, like Darth Vader. I, I I can't tell if you're being facetious, but I think you're I think you're actually completely. Uh, but I'm not being facetious. Oh, no. Well, I didn't know because he does throw the emperor away at the very end. But prior to that, villains generally speaking are in a fixed state. They yeah, have yeah. their story, and our the dynamic person is our protagonist who's going to grow and change. And some people right. say the way you define protagonist is by the person who experiences the greatest uh, sort of internal change. Yes, totally. Um, and so. This th that was just a very interesting way of looking because it also becomes what it really becomes is a roadmap for the world that your hero has to navigate if you're sticking to kind of a hero journey uh, that you layer on top. So rather than looking at it as one monolithic 22 step thing, I think you can still look at it. You can look at it as 22 steps, which are overlaid directly on top of one another. So you're trying to save the hero's journey. It turns out, yeah, my own <laughs> journey, my own hero's journey was to save the hero's journey. Um, <laughs> this is very meta. To me, that's, that feels like it might make the hero's journey more helpful, frankly. Uh, the last thing uh, that I thought was really, really interesting, James, you, you came to your the podcast right before this one with um, an idea you wanted to talk about, with which was positive passivity. Mm -hmm. uh, can you can you give a little nutshell of that? There, there's a, some calcified folk wisdom in the screenwriting and storytelling guru world that, oh, your, your hero has to be super active and always pushing every scene forward and have to be the most important person in every scene and and everything happens is because of them and then but then i look at all the things that i actually love like spirited away or Charlie in the chocolate factory or james and the giant peach or hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or harry potter or uh or twilight uh, or i could go on and on and they all have remarkably passive characters and i was like well why is that and then i i started to try to formulate a theory of positive passivity it was like it's actually especially for something that's written for a child um if the character is too uh self-actualized early on it's actually uh alienating to a kid there's, there's nothing you can identify with because a kid's entire life is just uh being pushed around by adults it has to it's okay for a character to be passive at first it may be even passive for a long time as long as their agency increases over the course of the work of art then it's fine. I, I really like, uh, James, how you... Uh, you guys each have such a great way of uh, sort of attacking uh, orthodoxy about storytelling um, in ways that make me re-examine some stuff I'm, uh, I'm a little unthinking about at times. And this is when I really I really appreciated you kind of cracking this open. And James, I know you, you tried to kind of float this thesis that like so long as the person's level of activity is or agency is increasing continually, we will go with it. This is a big thorny topic. 
but I'm going to just throw out a couple of things that I think are really interesting. First is, and this sort of fits with your idea that so long as it increases, I think on a fundamental level, we're talking about often with these these traditional stories, we're talking about characters who have a central internal flaw that they are learning to overcome through external trials, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of these stories, the passivity is the flaw. Yeah. And that's why it's nice when it increases. And I think, but attacking that as a specific character structural thing, which didn't really come up in your conversation, but I felt like it was kind of right there. It's not that the passivity is good. It's that the passivity is bad and we're seeing someone work through a bad thing and overcome a bad thing. So Harry Potter was, I think, James's, you know, most effective case he made of like, look, Harry Potter is just the most popular, the most popular children's book here of all times. And, you know, really passive for the first half of that book and does not get himself in this situation, does not do, you know, he never sneaks out of the house. He never, he never sneaks away from the Dursleys, but he does eventually sneak out of the Hogwarts common room on page 200 or something. And how do we get through those 200 pages? And, you know, as James was saying, you know, according to traditional story writing theory, you know, storytelling theory, we would not accept that. And so, we do. And why do you think, so if you're saying that passivity is, he was saying, James was saying it was because of positive passivity. You're saying that passivity isn't positive, it's flaw. So how do you think that works in Harry Potter? First of all, I think there's actually a different set of rules for stories that have incredibly rules heavy and complicated new worlds they're creating. Right. Because there's going to be an enormous amount of uh, sort of narrative energy and reader energy devoted to just learning the place. And those stories often uh, can sustain a more passive character. And the other thing is this goes back to that character consistency and that idea that passivity is the flaw. How would I, I, there's no other way I would define Harry Potter's growth in the Philosopher's Stone other than him learning to understand his sense of identity and place. So I agree that he's incredibly passive in the beginning. And that's what frustrates us in a way that makes us kind of fighting for him because we we see that there's all, and we've been told explicitly, there's something special about him and we need him to get it so he can start living out that role and accepting that mantle. Again, that's not a problem in in, in the storytelling. That's the, the character's problem. We get the pleasure of seeing them work through. And the other big piece of it is in lieu of external action, I think this is actually where longing is a tool, right? Mm-hmm. So Harry... Kind He does, I mean, if we believe the magic of the way the sorting hat has given him the choice, but the other thing that's happening there is a clearly articulated longing to not be Slytherin mm-hmm. um, and to be this other thing instead. I think longing might be the thing that lets us cover the gap of passivity. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the reason we get the we can't have a passive protagonist rule is often because one of two things are happening that are not necessarily the passivity. The first is that we actually kind of have a weak story and the story is lacking an engine at all. And we're we're going, well, where's the easiest place to put an engine in it? Oh, our main character, Um, which I don't, I do not always think is the right move. But the, and the other thing is, I think sometimes when we're, we're not liking a passive protagonist, it's not because they're literally not doing enough external actions to push the plot. It's because their internal longing has not been articulated and when that longing is articulated, when all of the internal gunk is articulated, their their false philosophies, their fears, all of these things, you talk about math, their weaknesses, flip side strengths, all these kind of internal mucky things, when those are crystal clear, mm-hmm. I think then even things happening to them can feel there's still internal advancements, right? Right. There's still little moral moments of moral failure, little moral moments of moral triumph. 
And while they're not actually in the external world on the security cam footage changing the, the situation, we're seeing that there's a there's feedback happening. Because it's the yeah, context of their longing. Yeah, and so I wondered and about certainly that. when I give notes, yes, a note I give is that this is too passive. You know, your hero's not driving the action enough. But a much bigger note is your hero doesn't want anything. If you have to choose, it's much more important to want something than to do something. And doing something without wanting anything doesn't work. But wanting something without doing something can work. Like I said, I didn't have a clear rule, but I, I really did think that the relationship between passivity and longing is something to take very seriously. That is a good um, point. And then so, passivity so itself think, is often the problem of character. So you think that Harry Potter's flaw in the first book is that he's passive? I think that's one of the major things that he's, yeah, that he's working through. He does not give much pushback to the Dursleys. And then, of course, the final page of the book is he goes back to the Dursleys and threatens them. No, with he, magic. no he doesn't. He, that would make him a villain. He, he just says, huh, well, you know, they don't know I can do magic this summer. Yeah, I guess you don't actually see him do it. If, he, if, if we saw Ron him and going Hermione, back and zapping Dudley, he'd be immediately a villain. <laughs> so, yeah, he tells them, I'm going to go home. And it's essentially, I have trouble getting to Salaslu. You know, I'm going to go home, and now my troubles are going to have troubles with me. This is, that's what he says on the last page. Yeah, but he book. says it. <laughs> <laughs> the final scene of Spirited Away is she says, you know, I think I can handle it now. Yeah. And so these are characters who are, to a certain degree, overcoming passivity but yeah. but not so much not so much with you know charlie the chocolate factory he's not overcoming passivity no yeah, but he, well, i mean i guess he's overcoming poverty he has <laughs> yeah, nothing I mean, he, and then he, he had everything gets the ultimate golden ticket he gets uh, he gets the factory but i mean charlie i mean i just i feel like charlie is a very weak character well this is where we come back to a these these giant worlds when the premise is so big b yeah. the weird structure of raw dolls novels which don't quite I mean, they're very good. He's he's probably my favorite children's writer, but they, in some ways, they don't satisfy, with the exception of Matilda, which I think yeah, gets Matilda, there. I agree, is and, the most and, traditionally satisfying of his novels, um, and maybe Danny, the champion of the world. Um, but uh, but the other thing is that's where again it feels like this is a this is a valuable tool when you're stuck with a passive character. Look at longing. Look at passivity as the problem itself, and then also uh, look at. Uh, at the meaning of moral tests, um, the significance of moral tests, and the opportunities to pass moral tests as a as a substitute for external action, which Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is is lousy with, right? It's all over the place. Every room is a moral test. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it's telling that the first movie version really hit that even harder by having him fail a test at one point and mm -hmm. made tests bigger. But like, I think they were actually intuiting one of the things that was propelling that story beyond just the spectacle and silliness and endless as, songs. As someone said on Twitter the other day, Charlie and the Charlotte Factory is just seven for kids. <laughs> 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 I'm deeply jealous of that tweet. Yes. Um, uh, so, all right. I feel like, Jonathan, you have deepened and enriched our understanding of the last four episodes we have done. You have added uh, a crucial bit of perspective to each one that we did not have at the time. I can understand your frustration as you listen to these and going like, you know, Matt, why are you not devastating James as he so richly deserves to be devastated? <laughs> if only I was there to tag team into the wrestling ring and Jonathan wrestling is ring on rink. record saying that he usually agrees with me. No, no, I, I, 
edit these, I edit this episode <laughs> myself. And if he said that, I can just take out the word not, or I can just take no, out. No, I the heard. Word I listened to all nine of them today. <laughs> he like made a point of saying last time he was on the show that he usually agrees with me. And in that episode, who did he agree with? He well, he, he said that on route <laughs> to saying this one time. <laughs> this one time. Somehow. Because I'm drunk, I'm agreeing with Matt. Yeah. Let, let me be entirely clear that me agreeing with you is not necessarily a badge of honor. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, it's really, really fun to talk with you guys about this. But more importantly, I think, um, and I don't know how many people out there um, are, go this deep in the story um, and like these sorts of conversations, but I love them and they're really not being had uh, in other places that I can find. And so I love that you guys, um, fight and argue over stuff. That's again, stuff that I haven't heard or thought about. And I've been thinking about this stuff pretty much nonstop for about 15 years now. So I think you guys are doing something really special and valuable. Um, and so fundamentally, I'm just a super fan of both you guys and, uh, and, and we, you, and we you yes indeed congratulations so much again for the success of your most recent novel and can't wait to read what you're writing next call in anytime and we will uh we will be happy to have you uh multiply the value of what we're doing all right thank you gentlemen go and sin no more thanks jonathan talk to you soon bye okay guys that was the section of the podcast with johnson oxier now we're gonna just do the end bit with me and james doing free story ideas but First, I want to play one last clip from the Jonathan Oxier section that got cut because you'll need to hear it for the next section. James, for what it's worth, I really loved I felt like I got a little peek into your like lineage and background uh, with how deep you were able to dive on C.S. Lewis. Uh, <laughs> because it it, uh, it 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 made me think that you didn't you weren't raised as the libertine that you present. Uh, I was raised a very strict Catholic. OK, um, yeah. So that that would. Uh, that was that was just very interesting. Wait, uh, I pretend to, to be a libertine? Uh, no, you don't pretend to be. You present as one. <laughs> and now here's the post-Jonathan section. What do you think it meant when Jonathan Oxier said that I, I presented as a libertine? <laughs> I think you do. I think, you know, we often joke about your wine consumption on this uh, on this podcast. But having a glass uh, of wine now and then doesn't mean you're a libertine. I mean, you are covered in lipstick marks right now all over. When I think of a libertine, I think of something like wearing a, a ruffled collar and, and and having, I don't know, like a, like a, a, a amorous adventures in a back alley. <laughs> That's not me. You've been sneaking around and kissing my wife behind my back the whole time that we've been recording this episode, just, James. Don't just, you realize that? It's a, this is a, this is a farce. This is, is a French farce that we're in right now. <laughs> uh, slamming doors and, yep. Um, the, cool. Uh, but uh, yes, no, you're a, you're a libertine. You present as a libertine, but it's all it's all false. It's all a front. You're a sad clown. Um, you're <laughs> no. not You're not you're not the libertine you you pretend to be, and you're. Uh, in your elaborate charade. Don't, is, is, what happens next in my, in my story circle? <laughs> <laughs> it's all about decline and fall. It's, uh-huh. uh, things aren't going to end well for you. Um, <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. So, all right, everybody. Jonathan is gone. Now, now is when everything gets real. Now is when we stop uh, being the polite people we pretend to be for Jonathan and we start really laying into each other. So we are going to... Once again, do free story ideas, which is the back bit of each of our episodes. And I'm pretty sure it is it is me. I think last time yeah. we did one, it was your Beowulf. Yep. Here's something that I noticed about all of these. Uh, that I, I listened to, as I said before, all nine episodes. And a bunch of the ideas that I had were ideas of things that already existed and I didn't know about it. <laughs> so when I had that idea of like screw tape and the idea of like down and out in heaven and hell, those are essentially just 
the good place. Yeah. And Which you had not seen yet when you when you originally did Down Down Hill, you yeah. didn't know about Good Place. And I haven't seen Miracle Workers, which has Daniel Radcliffe, the guy who played Harry Potter, and um, but like he is a like a low level bureaucrat angel. Okay. Uh, um, and uh, like somebody plays God in it, but he looks like Zephod Beeblebrox. All, all these ideas that I had along the way were things that already existed. Yeah. Well, and and as I pointed it, out, your Beowulf was similar to it. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, you know. Either I have uh, my finger on the pulse. <laughs> yeah, you put your finger on the pulse. Yeah, I think that's it. Or, or you've got your hand in the cookie jar. Which, which one is it? <laughs> well, I put my hand in the cookie jar and I felt flesh. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that one had a pulse. You bet. <laughs> and I, I tore out the 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 the, the, the throbbing. Um, <laughs> Beating heart. Beating heart oh, you're of such, my own creativity. You're such the libertine, James. Yeah. There yeah, you are with I, your I libertine choice again. Libertine. Libertine. <laughs> such an odd thing to say. Like, 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 uh, uh, buffoon I would take almost before I would take libertine. Libertine is a, is a, is a certain glamour that I don't have. Um, I, uh, yeah, no, you'll, uh, you know, you'll have to, uh, you'll have to take that with Jonathan next time he calls yeah. in as our special guest. Next episode so, should be about whether or not I'm a libertine. <laughs> yes. Um, well, will audiences accept libertines or are we, are we inevitably going to reject James Kennedy? Mm. Um, so, yes. So let's go ahead and do a free story idea for this episode. Uh, it is my turn. I have an endless, I've got a truly bottomless file of these things I can pull from. By bottomless, it means that the quality, every time you think it could get lower, <laughs> yes. it gets even lower. Yes, yes. Uh, so what's we haven't done it in horror yet. Oh, well, the Beowulf one was kind of Yeah, horror. that was kind of horror. I have not done a horror yet. Let me go ahead and do a horror. That was one of many, many hats I wore back when uh, I think my managers uh, wanted me to be horror to a certain extent. The, uh, they signed me based on a biopic and then based on a horror spec. And I think they wanted me to go more in the horror direction. I think this may have been from the time when I was trying to please them, trying to come up with stuff. So this is just, you know, based on the very real horror that anyone who has lived in New York City knows. And that is the fear that the subway will not stop at your stop. You know, sort of based on that, you know, we've got, it's New York City. We have various people from all walks of life in New York City who are all getting on the subway for different reasons, uh, coming from different places. And they all get on the subway and then... They realize sort of gradually, hey, the subway's going a long time without stopping. And then I don't know if it's, I don't know if they're just going through a tunnel the whole time and they're not stopping or if they're actually seeing stops go by that they're not stopping at. I don't know which would be, which I think it would be. Wait, are these characters on the train? And they're all on the subway. Okay, so it's not like they're waiting for no, a no, subway. No, no, no. Nobody's waiting for a subway. Everyone got, got on their train, got on their subway train, and it's just not, you know, I think it would be good at first if, like, they're like, oh, we just blew past that stop, because that's a very New York anxiety, the mm-hmm. sense of, like, oh, it didn't stop at my stop, it blew past my stop. But then that would get old if you're just constantly blowing past stops. I think in some ways, on an existential level, it would be better if it was just, you know, like, we're just not coming to any stops. Mm-hmm. We're just stuck in this train. We're just moving. And we're going. That's the core of the idea. Now, what is actually going on? So here's what I think is going on. I think, you know, we start with various people who are getting the train for various reasons. But I think our main character is a guy who he's trying to, you know, he's a former 
wild child. He's trying to settle down. He is trying to convince his current fiance that he is no longer like that. Then he gets a call from his drug adult ex, and she says, you know, I'm going through a really bad trip. I need you to come take care of me. I need you to come alone. Don't bring that downer girl you're with. And then she hears all this, and she's like, I am coming with you. We are coming. We are going to find this girl, and we're going to take care of her. I don't trust you to be alone with her. So then they go, and they get her, and they realize she's doing really bad. We need to get her someplace. Now, it wouldn't really work if it's something where they would call an ambulance. But of course, people don't tend to call an ambulance. People tend to, you know, just ambulate into the hospital. So they take her in, down on the subway to get in the hospital because uh, she's passed out. And then while she's on the subway, she wakes up and she's like, no, it was supposed to be just you. It was supposed to be just you. This is terrible. We're on a subway. That's the worst possible place we could be. Then she dies and the demon that has infected her comes out and it says, who will I infect next? And if it had been just him, then it would have taken over him, and she would have mm-hmm. sort of had her revenge on him. But uh, and so it's passed a little bit it on. Of it follows. Passed it on, yeah, to a certain extent. She would have passed it on to the one person who she knew was uh, just as degraded as she was and uh, deserved to. Degraded. Yeah, had a lead a life of of druggy. Uh, Why? What was her motivation that it had to be him? Like, wouldn't she just want to? She didn't want to ruin a good person's life. She wanted to, you know, pass it on to okay. someone who she considered to be equally worthless as herself. Someone who Do people had, uh, really think that way? They of... think of, like, other people who like to party with is worthless? She does. Okay. All right, go <laughs> so on. Then, so, then, uh, so then, basically, the, the demon, the djinn, arises out of her body and says, Oh, good, look, I have all these people to play with. You all have to kill each other, and the last one left alive will get ultimate power from me. And the rest of you are never, and no one is getting off this train until there's one person left alive. Go. And well, this is actually what the Will Smith Aladdin is going to be. Yeah, uh, this it is. is. This is um, they, they made some changes. It a bit. Yeah. You never had a friend like me. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it takes on an entirely different meaning. <laughs> no, and then it could just then be, you know, like literally everybody killing each other with their bare hands. Well, I think I think one by one, people are like saying, give me the power, I will start killing people with it. It can't just be something where it's like everyone killing each other with their bare hands. I think there's got to be some sort of supernatural element where somebody has some sort of power mm. that is being passed around. And then they've all got to, you know, get out of this situation. They've got to get off. And, you know, I figured it would be really easy to shoot. You have a bunch of subway cars. Really, you could just have one subway car and, uh, you know, dress it different ways as they go back and forth between the cars. But, you know, you just get a bunch of subway cars. You get a bunch of lights going by on the side. It's a very contained thriller. It's a very tight horror movie. And it's sort of a classic situation. It's an elemental fear. I think it's the gin that's it's and like the the part like why can't it just be people get on a train and then it's just clear that it's never going to stop mm-hmm. and then people start going more and more crazy and then they start killing each other it seems more organic and 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 then like and then you bring in the supernatural thing of a gin you know who's going to distribute favors it seems it could be much more kind of like a clean idea if it's just like here's a train we're all ordinary people in our ordinary lives. It's just not stopping. <laughs> and then people start to get hungry and crazy. And then they all start turning against each other. I, I think when you bring the supernatural thing into it, it's like a hat on a hat. Like, is this a genie story or is this a people stuck on a train story? But I, I, I like the idea. I, I, I suppose it would be cheap to shoot, but that's secondary. Like the, I like the idea of a train in which everybody just, I mean, it, it, this is like a classic story. Everybody's yeah. just like stuck together uh, and they all turn against each other. But of course they're 
have this illusion of going somewhere, but in fact they're not going anywhere. So you're doing more Lord on the Flies on a subway train. Is it Lord of the Flies? I mean, Lord of the Flies were a bunch of boys that were all more or less of the same like uh, socioeconomic level. Yeah. And, and but these this could be a cross section of New Yorkers, yeah, true. Of various people. Just what New York's and, all about. And so there's all kinds of like things could erupt that wouldn't erupt in Lord of the Flies. The, who's the main character? What do they want? You know, the main character is this guy, this former drug addict. He wants to convince his fiance, uh, his straight world fiance, that he is not that guy. That he, you know, is not still secretly in love with this girl, which he is. And that he is still not secretly in love with a life of wow. being a drug addict. That's enough. Which he is. Why do you need a demon? That, that's <laughs> enough. That's it. It, 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 and they're all just trapped in this train together. They're all trapped in this train. And don't have the, the woman pass out. She's still around. <laughs> and then there's around. drama. Like, oh, I have this very dramatic situation of three people have this very complicated relationship. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, wait, it gets better. One of them passes out, and so we never talk to her. Like, what? You set up this beautiful situation with all kinds of possibility, and then you immediately knock it down. Like, and then introduce a genie. Come on. Introduce a genie. That's right. I have three humans with a real situation, and I get rid of one. No, for genie. No, 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 no. This is, you need to have, between these three people and whoever else is around, who are the other people? Well, then it's, it's soon as, if I write the story well enough, that's the problem, is you're going to keep taking genre elements out. Eventually, I'm going to I'm gonna create a real, true human story about these three characters, and you're going to say I have to take away the out-of-control train. You're going to actually make them live in an apartment and have interesting lives and make me write a drama, no, aren't no, you? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You, you're jumping too far. I just think that if just having Sinbad show up <laughs> and have everybody, you know, start fighting each other. Is, actually, you know what? I take it back. Now that I realize it's Sinbad, it's going to be great. But here's a caveat: every other character has to be played by Sinbad, <laughs> kind of like Nutty Professor style. Yeah, that sounds great. I think it's like a one-man show. It's like Sinbad one-man show. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll be like Quentin Tarantino, and he'll be like John Travolta. I'll be like Sinbad. I always thought you were the most underappreciated actor yep. of your generation. Yep. I've written the yep. part of a lifetime for you. You're gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be fantastic. Yeah, guys, I think we all just became millionaires. Everybody go out and buy a car right now. Everyone I who it. I gave the story away, everyone who's listening right now, I gave the story away we to you, and you're all going to get rich off of it. It's yeah. going to be it's going to be a parallel production thing where every studio is going to buy yep. the script from from different ones of you, yep. and uh, then We're it's going to be a meteor. It's going to be a big legal mess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the judge is going to be like, now let me get this straight. You always do a podcast. He gave the story away. Well, I don't know much about the law, even though I am a judge. But I do know that everybody in this courtroom deserves one million dollars from the federal government. That would be great. I think we, I think we, I think we, we unlocked the key. All right, we did it. I think we have our most. Successful, we did it, everybody. Good job. We did it. We have our most successful free story idea ever. It's, that was a farce. That was a farce, uh, just like the the French farce that you <laughs> tend to create around you at all times as a libertine. Um, so, alright guys, so I think we have definitely determined I should give this idea away. It is going away. People are going to love it. They're going to. There's a million different ways you can go with it. As James has made clear, you can go in the Lord of the Flies direction. You can go in the uh, in all the Sinbad evil Aladdin, direction. you never had a friend like me direction. Uh-huh. You could go in the, uh, oh, let's just screw it and do an actual human drama amongst actual humans and they're never even stuck on a train department. Uh, you well, that was anything. you. 
<laughs> well, I'm giving them options, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, uh, okay, so we've had a free story idea. We've given it away. We had a wonderful talk with Jonathan Oxier. We are not going to wait so long before we do an episode. So we're recording another one next week, and then... With special guests. With another special guest next week, and then uh, special guest Jeff Betts. That'll be fascinating. And then we've got another episode planned for maybe a, a couple weeks after that. And then we've got a live show coming up next year. We've been invited by SCBWI, the Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators, to do a live show with me and James. That's coming up in 2020. We got lots of exciting things coming up. Okay, James, this was a lot of fun. I'm guys, Matt Bird. Uh, I'm James Kennedy again. Um, and you guys have a wonderful time out there in podcast land. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Head and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.